This is Mimi South. Welcome to the Enlightened Campfire. Just what are the boundaries between the mind and the body? Could it be that in the quest for clinical forms of treating the body, man has forgotten one of the most effective treatments of all? The new work, Transformative Imagery, Cultivating the Imagination for Healing, Change, and Growth, is edited by Leslie Davenport. It was released on April 21st of 2016 and is available through Amazon.com. Transformative Imagery is a compendium of works contributed by no less than 26 experts in the field of applied imagery. Our guest today is one of those contributors. The second of five sections of the compilation is on imagery for health and healing. Dr. Martin Rossman is the co-founder of the Academy for Guided Imagery and is the co-author of Chapter 6, Medical Applications of Guided Imagery. Dr. Rossman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. The new work that has just been released on transformative imagery, you contributed uh, to the work under the section on health and healing. Right. Could you please tell us a bit about the, the history of the medical use of guided imagery? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think there's a way that you could think of um, imagery almost as possibly the first medicine, really. It's, um, you know, it goes this far back, and I don't know how far back that is, when people started to imagine what they might be able to do in order to feel better or tend to wounds or injuries or illnesses. So it's one of the, you know, defining characteristics of the human being is the kind of mind we have, which we think is, you know, similar in certain ways. The brain is similar in certain, in many ways to other animals, especially primates. But the, the human mind seems to be rather relatively unique in a couple of different ways. One is the the the, uh, the amount of intellectual, rational thinking that we can do. Um, on the one hand, but on the other hand is also the amount of imaginative thinking we can do. We, we have this mental function called imagination, which in many ways is our, our most powerful mental function. It lets us uh, recall the past. Uh, memory has a lot to do with imagination, but it also lets us um, kind of preview possible futures and imagine what would happen if we did this or imagine what would happen if we did that and you know so the ideas that our primitive ancestors had or discovered uh, be they natural remedies or putting dirt on wounds or leaves or uh, eating certain things or praying uh, uh, to whatever they felt was really in charge of our life or the universe under whatever name that was those things when you think about it, they they initially come to our consciousness through the imagination, um, and a lot of the uh, 
you know, when you look at pre-modern medicine, especially as you go back to um, the most ancient kinds of even pre-civilizations, not even civilization, the medicine tends to be part and parcel of the spiritual worldview. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, the shaman and the the, the medicine man or woman, the, the witch doctor, the uh, ancient healers are always part physician, part priest, you know, and the causes of illness as well as the cure of illness was was generally believed to be what we would call supernatural, what they would call spiritual. Mm-hmm. So that the you know explanation in the pre-modern world for illnesses often has to do with curses or hexes or um, invasion and uh, inhabitation by you know by spirits that mm-hmm. may be lingering around for whatever reason or may have been sent by you know uh, as parts of curses and so on. So the treatments also tended to be really rooted in the imagination. There might be, you know, rituals that developed over time, the rituals being basically aimed at driving out evil spirits or energies that were allowed to enter the system or mobilizing benevolent or beneficent kinds of spirits to kind of help help heal. So in that sense, I think, you know, imagery is part of all human healing rituals. And... Um, and operates unconsciously, you know, all of the time. It's part and parcel of of what we refer to as the placebo effects, which is not really a great term. I think it would be right. better, it would be better to call the placebo effect the you know the healing effect of the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, because a lot of people when they hear placebo, they sort of write it off. It's like, oh, that's just placebo. But what people often don't realize is is that effect of expecting to get better because something has been done to help you get better is one of the most powerful effects in medicine. It's it's generally thought to be responsible for 35 to 70% of all medical effects. So it's really? very powerful, yeah. And the reason that, <clears throat> you know, the, the reason that we do these hundreds of, these these double-blind, randomized, controlled placebo studies that are kind of the gold, gold standard of evidence in medicine um, is because it takes all of that expense and difficulty to get the effect of the mind out of the equation, <laughs> right? That's yeah. the only reason that they do these studies, which cost, you know, and they probably average $200 million. So wow. So if the person giving you, say, the pill, typically it's a pill or an injection, it, those kinds of studies don't work very well for, you know, for mind-body effects or things that involve the mind. But they work, they work very well for pills and injections and things that you can, that are physical and that you can take and that you can make a sham product that looks just the same. So if somebody, a doctor or somebody else, gives you you know, an inert pill, a placebo pill, pill that has no active medicine in it. Um, if they know, if you know whether you're getting the real pill, real pill or the fake pill, that has an effect on 
where mm-hmm. you respond or not. So if you believe that if you get the fake pill but you believe you got the real pill, then most people will have a positive response and they'll get pain relief or better digestion or better bowel movements or even changes in their blood chemistry and so on because they believe they're getting the real pill. So the whole idea of the placebo control is to tell whether the pill itself has any real activity because we know that the mind has real activity, <laughs> right? It's kind of backwards from how people think about it. And right. and the other thing is that even if the person giving it to you, if they know whether it's real or fake, that has an effect on whether you whether you approve or not. So that one's even harder to explain. <laughs> I, won't get, I won't go into that one. Um, one of the things that I think is so fascinating about this topic is just how much of a combination it is of the ancient and the modern. Oh, absolutely, because it's still very active in us. So the you know the key thing, and I'm not saying that all of imagery work, all of guided imagery work and therapeutic imagery work, that it's all mobilization of the placebo effect or what we, mm-hmm. we would rather call it the power of positive expectant faith. It's not all that, but that is an active element of it. And you know, if you're a if you're a researcher and you're researching pharmaceuticals or substances to see whether they have any effect, you want to go to those extreme lengths in order to get the power of the mind out of the equation. And uh but if you're a patient and you're and you're not feeling well or if you're a doctor or a healthcare practitioner you want to mobilize that effect you know and you want to mobilize it uh ideally not by deceiving somebody or lying to somebody or pretending that something is something that it's not mm-hmm. but you want to think about you know hey if i can be fooled into feeling better i can be fooled into pain relief i can be fooled into my blood counts improving that means there's something going on between my mind and my body or my brain and my body and you know maybe i could find the mechanism maybe i could find the switch and turn it on myself mhm and that's where mind body medicine comes in and and imagery is just a huge part of mind body medicine because when you imagine things which is typically one way of thinking about imagery is that it's thinking with sensory qualities. It's thoughts that you can imagine seeing, hearing, feeling, tasting. And they tend to have a you know a stronger effect on the body than than just plain words. And the example that we often use Mimi is uh you know if we ask a group of people to to salivate to create saliva. A mm-hmm. certain amount of people will notice that they have an increase in saliva. But if we ask people to um, kind of take a minute and imagine that they're in their kitchen, they're cutting a big juicy lemon into quarters, and, you know, really imagine you're there and feel the heft of the lemon and the feeling of the knife going through it as you cut it in half and then cut it into quarters and then you know, look at it and notice the pale yellow and maybe a drop or two of juice that's on the surface and maybe you cut through a seed and then you imagine bringing it close to your face and maybe you get a whiff of that lemony smell and you're going to in a minute you're going to bite into that lemon and you're going to suck that <laughs> lemon juice down. Did you get kind of a feeling in your cheek there? 
so, I think I need a drink. <laughs> yeah, and then and if you you know if you've got a really good imagination, I always tell you now imagine you do it with a really nice sweet orange, you know. And the interesting thing is, if you imagine you have a nice sweet orange and you bite into it and you taste that sweet orange juice, you'll you'll actually salivate from a different place in your mouth. So really, most, that's fascinating. Yeah. So most people will salivate much more uh, actively if they imagine biting into a lemon, and then they will if you just tell them to salivate. And that's because it it activates sensory parts of the brain you know, the parts of the brain that would be involved in that act, up to a certain degree, the brain doesn't differentiate between what you're imagining and what, what's actually happening. Mm-hmm. So another example is, you know, we often to teach people relaxation. Guided imagery is often the simplest way to teach somebody to relax. And, and because stress is so prevalent and involved in so many medical, it's such a high risk factor for so many medical conditions, because it complicates so many medical situations, just simply teaching someone to physiologically relax and quiet their mind is one of the most useful uh, things we do with guided imagery. It's a a fundamental. And the easiest way is to invite somebody to imagine themselves going somewhere that they love to be in that's peaceful and beautiful and safe and that they love to be in, and it could be, a place that they recall or that they've actually been to or it could be an imaginary place. But you go through all of the senses, like what do you imagine seeing in this peaceful, beautiful place? Are there any sounds or is it very quiet? Is there a a quality of the air or fragrance? Um, What's the temperature like? What time of day is it? So you get all these sensory, you get immersed in all these sensory qualities. And what we know now from brain science is if they look at people's brains with a a, a machine called a functional MRI, you see that when people are imagining seeing something, when you're imagining seeing something, the parts of your brain that process vision get active, just like Mm -hmm. they do if you were actually seeing it. And when you imagine the bird sounds or the wind in the trees or the sound of the river or the sound of the surf or whatever, the parts of your brain that process sound get activated. And if you do, if you can't imagine a, a smell in the air, a fragrance, the part of your brain that processes smell gets active. And if you imagine the warm sun on your skin, the parts of your brain that process that get active. So so what happens is you immerse yourself in this imagery of a beautiful, peaceful, quiet place is that your brain is sending messages down through the lower parts of the brain that say this looks and feels and smells like a peaceful, beautiful, quiet place. And those lower, more primitive central parts of the brain that basically only send out two signals, one of which is alarm, danger, Mm -hmm. turns on our fight-or-flight response and activates our nervous system for danger, or it sends out an all-clear signal, like it's okay to relax, everything is beautiful and peaceful and safe. And your physiology shifts into a type of physiology that allows the body to heal and repair things more efficiently. So when we when we do that, when we just close our eyes usually and pick a safe place and take 10 or 15 minutes and just really have a daydream of going to a place that's peaceful and safe where you can relax and you don't have much to do, it 
shifts the body into what we could call a facilitated healing and repair state. Mm-hmm. It shifts it out of that fight or flight, highly aroused state that that many of us in modern life spend a huge amount of our day in, you know, because we're reacting to stresses that are not only real but also stresses that are imagined. And that's and part of the that's <clears throat> the downside of the imagination is that uh the imagination is always searching for signs of danger because you know the brain's number one job is to help you survive right and physiologically speaking that rest period would automatically come after the fear period that's but right in the, in, in the our wild. modern state where it just goes on and on and on exactly. and on and stress and stress yeah and the, the stress researchers so the stress researchers call that you know, the first type, they call it type 1 stress. It's the kind of stress you, you would have if you were a, what I call a free-range human, you know, mm-hmm. living in nature. And there aren't many people like that anymore. But <clears throat> it's not that there isn't stress, but the kind of stress would be you run into a predator in the jungle and, boom, that fight-or-flight response goes off and your adrenaline surges through your blood and your heart beats faster and your blood pressure goes up and your blood clots faster and your muscles are stronger and it it prepares you to either run for your life or fight for your life and mm-hmm. and you you know there would be an intense period of physical activity you'd either be able to escape the the tiger or kill the tiger or you know or it's eating you for lunch and <laughs> in any case you don't in about 20 30 minutes it's all over and if you've survived, just what you said is true, you would kind of go back to the cave or the village or whatever, and you'd probably sleep for a good long time, and mm-hmm. and your body would shift into that restorative state until it had replenished all those chemicals that you'd burned up at an extraordinarily high rate. And that's what they call type 1 stress, where there's a very clear threat, there's a period of activity to address it, if you survived it, then you shift into that compensatory relaxation state, and you come back to, to normal. But in modern, an on-off switch. Yeah, but in modern, you know, it's episodic. It happens once mm-hmm. in a while. Like that doesn't happen all day long. But in modern life, where where we deal with deadlines, we deal with finances, we deal with politics, where we've got the news on all the time where every bad thing that can happen all around the world is piped into your mind if you let it um, through the television or through the phone or through the computer or whatever. Um, When you're worried about the future and you're worried about things like that, which again gets sent down from the brain through that same mechanism and keep your body aroused and ready to deal with, uh, with a danger, they call that type 2 stress because... The threats are many, they're kind of vague. Most of them you can't really do anything about. And you don't get that clear cut, I just ran for my life, I survived, and now I go to, now I relax and I compensate. It just goes on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it wears us out quickly. It exhausts us. A lot of times it, it moves into our sleep cycles and further exhausts us and, and we get tired and then we start doing 
you know, and then we start doing things to try to compensate for that. You drink more coffee or you drink more alcohol or you eat comfort foods or, you know, there's just a bunch of methods where we're, we're trying to reduce our stress and anxiety. But if we keep doing that over long periods of time, those things have toxicity associated with them and they end up making us worse. So this whole business of, you know, you know, most of the effects of the imagination, if if you don't pay attention and learn how to use it, most of them are negative, really. You know, it it can be just a stress-generating machine that goes on and on. And really what we have to do is the first step for most people is to, to understand how that works and then learn a method that interrupts that ongoing pattern. And just because you decide to put yourself into a state where your body can, I call it clean up, paint up, fix up, you know, <laughs> where it goes into that healing mode and, and can restore itself more efficiently than if you don't interrupt that. And that's one of the, and and guided imagery goes beyond that. It goes into problem solving and understanding the relationship between emotions and stress and even between uh, spiritual issues and life issues in your body. And there are really pretty amazing things we can do with it. But a lot of it comes back to being able to more effectively manage stress and reduce anxiety and stress, interrupt it, and it'll give the body a better chance to heal and repair itself. And where do you see this heading in the near future? Well, I think it's going to be, I mean, you know, if you look at the when you uh, the chapter in Transformative Imagery that I wrote with my colleague Dean Schrock on medical applications of guided imagery, there's so much research that's been done over the last 40 years on both the effects of runaway stressful imagery and the positive effects of learning how to use it, you know, on purpose, that mm -hmm. we just had to summarize it. I mean, we, we have hundreds and hundreds of medical articles ranging from everything on, you know, reducing anxiety and depression to relieving pain to uh, uh, reducing complications from surgery and other medical interventions to facilitating uh, fertility, facilitating childbirth and delivery, um, helping people heal faster after joint replacement surgeries. Um, it's really, a, you, you'll see it's an amazingly wide range of just simply medical issues. That's the chapter mm -hmm. we focused on. And then in the rest of the book, there's it goes way beyond that into, you know, uses of guided imagery for emotional healing, for spiritual, you know, exploring spiritual issues for transcendence and transformation and uh, clarifying, you know, spiritual dilemmas and issues and uh, everything from, you know, simple practical problem solving to dealing with the biggest, most ethereal issues we deal with as humans. But on the on the strictly medical level, and that's you know, I kind of enjoy looking at something so powerful and invisible like the imagination, which to some people seems kind of airy-fairy and new-agey, but it's not. It's just one of our most powerful mental functions. It's like every anything that humans have built and created on Earth mm -hmm. started in somebody's imagination. 
period. Skyscrapers, you know, rocket ships, satellites, Hubble telescope, undersea exploration, MRIs, X-ray machines, robotic surgeries, airplanes, cars. Everything started, it made its first entrance into this world in somebody's imagination. And mm -hmm. then they had to figure out how to, you know, how to put it together and get there. So I think you can honestly say that outside of God or na in nature, you know, the human imagination is the most powerful function on Earth. And, you know, nobody argues with me about that. It's an incredible... Well, I certainly won't. Uh, so our job, I think, is to learn how to use it better, learn how to use it on purpose, because a runaway imagination, you know... Uh, if you've got a runaway imagination and you're always just going over and over things that you worry about or fear or anticipate, you let your imagination run roughshod over you. It's like having a big, powerful wild horse that you don't train, you know, and it just runs over mm -hmm. you. Okay. Um, whereas if you befriend that horse and feed it and train it and uh, learn how to, to put its power to use, that you know, that horse can take you on long journeys, it can be your friend, it can plow a field, it can be a very useful. Um, yes, interesting. The, the word translated as meek, as in the meek shall inherit the earth, its original meaning is actually closer to tamed, as in to, to tame and, and to bring under control, as you're saying. Well, that's interesting, yeah. It's a powerful mental function. And, and you know, really almost nobody's really been taught how to use it, you know. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, you know, in my day in school, I was reading, writing, and arithmetic, all very useful things, very linear, logical. And that's another one of our the powers of the human mind that's very useful. But but there was no attention paid really to using your imagination. You know, it was somewhat, dis somewhat discouraged mm -hmm. unless you went into the arts, right. something like that. But it's, you know, it's a very powerful thing that we all use day to day. But some of us, uh, so a lot of the imagery training that, that I do and that other people do, you know, my my most recent book before this was called The Worry Solution. Mm -hmm. And that actually looks at the imagination, how it's really trying to solve problems through worry and how useful it can be doing that. But when we're unaware of, when we don't know how to use it and it's just running on, it can turn into this very bad worry habit and just constantly create anxiety for us. And that's something that's very important for people to learn how to stop. And it is possible to stop that. Well, I'm going to have to add that to the list then when I order transformative energy. Yeah, take a look at it that. It sounds like just a, a fascinating collection. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yeah, and I want to thank you for taking the time to, to introduce it to us. Well, I'm very happy to do that. It's really a very a very good book. It covers a lot of ground, and uh, um, I hope you'll take a look at the other one, too. All right. Excellent. Dr. Martin Rossman, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mimi. Thanks.